Hey everyone, welcome back to the 307 Podcast. We have an awesome interview style episode today with a great friend, a mentor of mine named Scott Worthington about a race that he just completed a few weeks ago called the Yukon 1000. It's 1,000 miles unsupported down the Yukon River. Um, and it's just an amazing story. I can't wait to share this one with you guys, but before we get into the episode, I want you to know today's episode is brought to you by Hoist, our hydration partner here at 307 Project. Hoist is an amazing company with amazing people and a outstanding product. We use Hoist products here at 307 Project to keep ourselves hydrated, and uh, it helps us go further and uh, run longer and yeah recover better so it's an amazing product because it is a lot better for you than most other well actually all other um what you would call electrolyte drinks such as gatorade powerade the normal stuff that you're used to seeing uh, hoist has better ingredients zero preservatives and just a much better mix that works well with your body it is specifically formulated with carbohydrates electrolytes and fluids to match your body's natural state it absorbs rapidly without the need for digestion and it replenishes your body immediately, clinically proven, to keep you hydrated longer than water. Yet that's been in alignment with my experience too, and it also tastes great. Um, they are huge supporters of the U.S. military, which I was a part of that organization, as you know, for a long, long time. And uh, I appreciate any company that is supportive of our service members because I understand the sacrifice that people doing that job make. So the first time I actually ever saw Hoist was in a Navy Exchange gas station on base. They've been around for quite a while. If you run, if you hike, if you climb, if you bike, if you're outside and you sweat and deplete your body, get you some Hoist, man. It's the way to go. Um, You can actually get a subscription to the Hoist product online where they just send you however much you want on a regular basis every month so you've always we always keep some here on our shelf in the office we love them and if you want to support the podcast support the companies that support the podcast and we vet these companies highly and we are not going to try to sell you some junk that we don't use so check them out at drink hoist com. That's drinkhoist.com. I'll attach a link to the show notes uh, or a link to this website in the show notes of this episode along with the pro code that you can use to get a discount on your purchase with Hoist. Thank you, Hoist, for being such an amazing partner. We love you guys. And uh, before we start in with Scott's episode, I do want to make an announcement. I got word from Ben, which was Scott's paddling partner, Ben, thank you for letting me know this. Ben got trench foot during his mission out on the uh, Yukon River. We weren't able to have Ben on the in- the interview, but uh, it was Scott's paddling partner. Ben actually did use salty britches on his feet, and he still got trench foot. So thank you for correcting me on that, Ben. Uh, other than that, here's the episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here he is, Scott Worthington. 
All right, everybody, welcome back to the 307 Podcast. We've got a very special guest on the show today, a good friend and mentor of mine named Scott Worthington, all the way from New Zealand. How you doing, Scott? Good, thanks, Chad. Man, I've never been here before to your home, but uh, man, I'm having a ball. It's great. It's been a good. It's been a good last week and a half or so, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. Um, Doing a bit of paddling. It's been great. So, if you guys don't know Scott, he's been on the podcast before quite a long time ago. It's probably been two plus years, maybe three years. I would now. say more like three. Yeah, yeah probably been yeah. three years. So, a long time ago, I met Scott uh, way back when I had first gotten out of the Navy. Scott started a race in New Zealand called the Revenant, and Scott reached out to me. Somehow he found me on Facebook or Instagram or... No, I found you because uh, another American friend who was a ranger. That's right. And he was at a podcast and he was going to come to the race. Mm -hmm. And then he got posted and he overheard you on this podcast basically saying you were looking for something. And he thought that my race might be what you were looking for. Yep. So he put me in touch with you. So that's, yep. that was the connection. That would have been Trail Runner Nation podcast, probably. Yep. And that was, yeah, because that was before I was even on social media. That was right almost when I got out of the Navy. And, and Scott reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this race called The Revenant. He explained a little bit about the race to me. And I'm like, well, here's this random guy calling me with a strange uh, accent from a country that's literally on the other side of the the world uh and he said i would like for you to i'd like to give you the opportunity to come out here and participate in the race year one and so i took that opportunity and went out spent some time with scott did the race uh i participated in the race didn't finish no finishers the first year nope um and we've been close friends ever since. Scott has been with me, a, a mentor, an advisor, a friend, since the very genesis of 307 Project. And Scott is always doing crazy stuff. Stuff that you just never even, you don't even know these things exist. Races that you've probably never heard of, like a race called God Zone. Um, he just came off a 1,000-mile-long paddle kayak race on the Yukon River. It not, you don't even know this stuff exists. And he that's what I want to talk about today a lot about, 1,000 miles on the Yukon River. And then he leaves that race, and he comes and joins me and my team in Georgia and does another seven and a half, eight days paddling down another river. And now we've got a little bit of time to sit down and do a podcast. <laughs> so he hasn't really stopped. This is probably the longest period of time he's sat down in a seat other than in a kayak seat um, over the, about the last two weeks. So we're happy to have him. And Scott, I want to talk about the Yukon. Uh, then I want to talk about what's going on with the Revenant. And then I want to talk a little bit about how things are going in New Zealand at the end of the show. Yep. So, how in the world did you find this Yukon 1000 race? How did it get on your radar? 
Yeah, it got on my radar because um, you can't do it as a solo, so they won't allow that. So you've got to do it as a two-person team, mm-hmm. uh, and that's mainly for safety because uh, it's totally unsupported. Um, and, yeah, my, my paddling partner, Ben Lott, he wanted to do it, and uh, he was chatting to me one day and um, was looking for a, somebody to do it and you know, probably couldn't find anybody, and I just said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And when I said I'd do it, I didn't actually know what he meant, but he didn't say it was a thousand miles. He just said it was called the Yukon One Thousand. So I, I just said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." And then I went home, a, maybe a week later, and had a look on the internet and saw that it was a thousand mile paddle, and it's like, "Okay, that's cool. Well, we'll do that." So, how did Ben hear about the race? Because I had never heard about it. No, I don't. To be honest, I don't know either. But Ben um, had been a very good uh, uh, horse rider and in his younger days had gone up to Canada. So I'm just assuming that because of his relationship with people up in Canada, mm-hmm. that maybe through them, I don't know, that he'd heard. He certainly loves that area. Mm-hmm. He loves North America, but especially he loves Canada. Um, and I think the Yukon itself for most people is a pretty wild area. Um, so I'm just assuming. I nev- I've actually never asked him that question. It didn't didn't really it didn't mean anything to me. It's like we're going to do it anyway, so... Yeah, yeah. Who, who needs to know? <laughs> so you just rogered up for it, not even knowing what it was. You, yep. you just and so yep. when you started to when you started to really understand what this thing was, what appealed to you about this challenge? I think what appealed to me. I mean, I like as soon as I see something that says unsupported, mm-hmm. I like it um, because you know you and I have chatted before about for me one of the sort of characteristics I like in people and I expect in myself, is self-reliance. I don't like relying on other people. I, I like helping other people, but I like to rely on myself. Mm-hmm. So any event that is unsupported is going to have a natural appeal. Then I just got to look at where it is, what the skill set is I need, have I got it, haven't I got it. Um, and so unsupported in possibly one of the last frontiers on Earth, mm-hmm. man, that's <laughs> that's... That's that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah, I, I want you to give us a little context because the Yukon River, uh, probably a lot of people have heard of Yukon, but they they don't have any context for what that is and, yeah. and what makes the what makes that river special. What makes it different? Give us a little context on what the, what that area is like. And okay, um, the Yukon. Uh, I think the first thing that st- strikes me. When I think about the Yukon Territory, yeah, uh, the, with the river being the biggest arterial, the biggest river in that territory, is the territory is slightly twice the size of my country, and my country is similar to the size of California. So think of an area twice the size of the state of California, with forty-three thousand people in it, and twenty-nine thousand of those people are in one one place, Whitehorse. So you know that you've got a territory where nobody's home except Mother Nature and the, and the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, a river that goes literally right through that territory and then carries on through Alaska and finishes in the sea, in the Bering Sea, it's going to be a pretty special river. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out to be. So, yeah, that had all the appeal. And, uh, that, that's everything I needed to get a green light to go. Well, I... Once you figured out what this thing was, and then 
like you said, what you began, to, you heard unsupported. That's right in your lane. Um, it's obviously going to be challenging, a thousand miles. I want to talk through once you kind of did your initial research and had an idea of what it was. I want to talk through what the planning process looked like and also the training. So planning and training okay. leading up to the race. Um, yeah. And you can attack either one of those individually. Yeah, let's, let's do the, the planning because yeah. the planning is, is relatively easy for someone like me and certainly Ben, my partner. We both do a lot together mm-hmm. uh, and we both do a lot in wilderness areas. So New Zealand has an area called Fiordland where we, we spend a lot of time uh, and a lot of that area no human's ever been. No, There's no f- human footprint. Yeah, you took and me there one time, Scott, and I will tell you, listeners, he's he's not lying about that. This yeah. place is a wild, I would say the most wild place I've ever been, and I've been to a lot of places. The plants are, the, the ferns are head high. The trees, it's untouched timber. The birds have never seen people. You've literally, me and Scott, we've ta- stopped to take a little break for a snack. We sit down and the birds will fly down and land on a limb five feet from you and they just sit there and stare at you like you're an alien yep. because they've never seen a human being before. Yep. So I, I want to say it's a challenging environment you guys go yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, look, it's a very challenging environment. So we travel through that on a relatively regular basis. So from the planning point of view, a lot of those aspects of a normal um, mission like this, we don't have to plan because we just do it all the time. So a lot of the logistical things uh, are automatic for us. So the planning was really based around, um, you know, simple things like, uh, you know, where we're going to buy equipment, where we, what we were going to take from our home country versus what we were going to purchase. Uh, we looking at taking our kayak versus hiring a kayak. We ended up hiring one because it was very expensive. It's about $40,000 to get our own equipment over. So, um, so it was those sort of relatively simple things that really made up our plan. Um, the, the, that then morphs into the training because part of our plan was, you know, I'm in my 60s and Ben's in his early 30s. So the way we would train uh, had to be different. Uh, and the way we train became specific to the task that we chose to have in our little team. So, you know, we're both very good navigators. Um, ben probably reads rivers better than I do. Um, so in other words, we're both good, but you've, that's not good enough. You, you, you want to hone in on who is best. Mm-hmm. There's no egos here. It's, it's a matter of just making sure the best person is, is charged with doing that task. So our planning was also around our training and that training would be specific to the task that we were going to take on in the race. So I tended to take on the sort of the workhorse. Um, so a lot of my training, um, for example, um, I trained a lot on the water, but I also trained a lot on a kayak, a specific kayak erg. Um, and the reason I did that was because I knew lots, of, you know, you're doing a thousand miles. Um, it's going to be parts where it's boring. You know, yeah. it's going to be monotonous. Yeah. Um, and that's monotonous because of the pain, because of what's happening around you. Um, and what the ERG offered me was that. It offered me the ability to sit in my garage or my gym, 
my gym actually allowed me to take the um, ergon into the gym so I could I'd paddle in that environment and then I could do my weights and everything bounce straight off the machine. And that, you know, that culminated in me doing an 18-hour erg effort, uh, 18 hours because that's what we had to paddle every day. Um, so, you know, I, that that allowed me to be the, the sort of the base, the, the, the old boy in the back just sort of, you know, could keep going. You know, that's interesting, Scott, that you pointed that out because most people would think, well, you're training on that kayak erg, which is for – Describe what that is a little, a little more to the people, because we have rowing machines yeah. in, the, in the. Well, it's exactly the same. Imagine, okay. imagine something like a, a normal rowing machine with a fan, you know, a resistance fan in the front. So it looks almost identical to that, but instead of an actual a seat that that moves, yeah, you've got a fixed seat like a, a rower, mm-hmm. and you have a, pa- a a true paddle handle. Okay, and you've got a pulley either side, and you can actually paddle it just like a kayak. Gotcha. Um, okay. So it is. It is. It it rewards really good technique, um, but of course, the biggest reward for me was the ability that it just amplified boredom. Well, that that's what I was going to get at. It's interesting that you said that because most people, including myself, when you were telling me about those big efforts that you were doing on the kayaker, I was more seeing that as well scott's building fitness and and technique and building core strength and and i did not realize how much a component you were training uh how just just that monotony you were you were training your mind to be able to deal with the monotony of that that simple movement for 18 hours straight and that that really was because you know we would do the on water stuff um, and, you know, Ben especially would spend a lot more time on water um, because he was honing the additional river <coughs> skills that we needed, and I was focusing on being the diesel engine. Yeah. That's sort of the way to, to, best way to, to describe that. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the biggest roadblock for being the guy that was just going to continue to paddle hmm. uh, was actually your mind shutting down because – it's not just monotonous, maybe stretches the river. That monotony of feeling that pain for hour after hour after hour after hour. You got to train your mind to be able to handle that. Um, so you get creative while you're sitting on something that is really boring. Yeah. And you you train your mind to think about different things and take things in short short clips. And you know when I did my eighteen hour stretch, you know I I sort of thought in two hour to our sort of increments, mm-hmm. think about something, and after two hours, just change your mind onto something else. I mean, you know what it's like. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the erg served its purpose. But getting back to your question, that was part of the plan. So part of the biggest, one of the biggest factors in our planning was how would, who would take on what specialist tasks, mm-hmm. and um, therefore your your training had to be focused on accentuating those over and above just your general fitness level mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a whole component that i wouldn't i didn't even consider when you were doing all that work and, and what are some of the the other you said ben spent more time on the water what are some of the other components or skills that he was training on water to add to the team so you as the diesel engine training the the that monotony piece, training the fitness piece of just being able to paddle. 
yep. constantly, consistently. Yep. What was Ben more focused on? Okay, and I wish we had been here, obviously, to talk. Yeah. But yeah. just what you what what you guys planned out, you knew yeah. he was working on. Yeah. So um, you know, when you're on a river, um, it's all those skill sets of you know, you sort of know how to 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 uh, identify eddies and and flow and but you can always sharpen those up. Yeah. But the the sharpness of those those skills was going to be important or more important if the river was flowing high. Because one of the, the factors in this race is you're only allowed on the water for eighteen hours. So the way it works is that between ten uh, PM in the in the uh, or twenty two hundred in the evening and midnight, you had a grace period of two hours to find a location to get off the river, after which six hours later you could start paddling again. Um, and if the river was going to be high, uh, then finding those areas was going to be more difficult mm -hmm. and finding a very small eddy and being able to um, get the boat maybe in a fast-flowing section and turn it into that very small eddy, was, was, you're going to have to be pretty skilled. Yep. Now, as it turned out, we were spot on because the river was the highest in history. It had had a late melt. It had a huge amount of snow. The river had been iced up. And I don't think the ice broke till about the 25th of May, which is pretty late. Uh, in fact, we saw chunks of ice still on the river when we mm -hmm. were racing. And um, so that meant if it was flooded and it turned that out to be that way, those skills were going to be not just important, they were going to be imperative. Mm. So we, we, that, we put that in our planning. So he's learning, uh, learning and honing yeah. how he can read the water, the surface of what's the surface of the river telling him about what the current's doing. Yeah. And yeah, just honing. I mean, he had good skills anyway, but it was like we can always get better. Yeah. So he was honing those. Um, he also, a good friend of mine, his name is also Ben. His name is Ben Fui. And Ben was a silver medalist at, I think, Athens Olympics as a kayaker and was world champ for, for a while. Uh, best in the world and um, so we engaged Ben Fui to to help us um, in, in our in our preparation and again that was just fine-tuning little things um, and again it turned out to be it turned out to be a really really um, good choice or good decision that we made to take skills that we thought were probably good enough Mm -hmm. But you can. It was a really good lesson, and you can never be good enough. Yeah, you can always learn, and that, I know that's a cliche. But we got to the race, we saw the water levels, and there is a race called the Yukon Quest that only goes halfway. It goes about just under, or it might be yeah, just under five hundred miles. It goes about halfway, and that happened, uh, I think, just over a week before we we our race started. And they put out alerts, and they had safety boats. They had all sorts of things on the river because you simply couldn't stop. But we had to stop. Yeah. So here was a race where they had put all sorts of things in place to help um, the racers you know, achieve their goal because they couldn't get off the river. Yeah. Uh, but 
the race director for us doesn't do that. It's like, well, the conditions are what the conditions hmm. sorted out. Truly it's, unsupported, yes. Yeah. totally unsupported. So, yeah. you know, he made us aware and gave us some good intel. Let me grab a bottle real quick. So he, he gave us some good intel, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, the difference between that quest and a lot of races I do and the Yukon 1000 is it is truly unsupported. Yeah. So in every, in every way. Now, who, who ended up taking lead nav? You or Ben? Um, or did well, that change? Yeah, it changed a little bit. I mean, there were, there were sections where there really wasn't any, any you know, it was just basic nav. Yeah. And that, that was a, a reasonable proportion of the race. Then there were areas where um, I would take a nav. I was running the maps off the front. Um, and then there were areas, especially probably through the most difficult part, uh, which is the flats. Um, you know, there were areas where we both work on it. Um, and through the, through the flats, um, I would say, you know, if you wanted to wait it, I'd say probably Ben took a little bit more on. But it was a very, very difficult area. Uh, and maybe we can talk about the Yeah, yeah we will. Issue. I wanted to bring up NAV just right now while we're talking through the preparation also because I remember you telling me that certain sections of the river haven't been charted or, or, or mapped properly. So how, how at what point did you engage that and how did you acquire the material that you needed to navigate okay, the yeah. river? Yeah, that's right. So... Up to Dawson City, which is roughly just under 500 miles, so just under halfway, um, there are very good local maps done by a guy called Mike Rourke, who's over over time just charted and, and gone down the river multiple times. And so you've got a basic map of the river with points of interest, and which is enough for you to navigate those sections. But once you get past uh, Dawson City, very, very few people have ever been. Um and therefore there's really no mapping and once you get past circle which is just before you you go through the arctic circle there is no mapping it doesn't exist so um yeah the preparation for the navigation was done by myself i took that task on at home um and i compilated uh, mike's uh, rourke's maps and then the last section of the so we had i think 90 maps was the number of maps we used um, and the last third of the race, um, I just gridded up. So I basically played around with Google Earth. I got the scale I wanted to and then just gridded them up with, um, uh, you know, longitude and latitude. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and put them into booklet form. Uh, lots of guys, there was lots of interesting ways of formats of how you would create your maps, remembering that we can't get out of the kayak we can, but it slows you down. And as it turned out, so much of this river was, you just couldn't get out. Yeah. It was flooded. So again, our planning was based around not only what the maps look like, but what format was going to best meet the conditions we were in. So fundamentally, you'd have to have those maps um, on your lap or maybe just in front of you. Um and they had to be of a size that was legible, but they also had to be of a format that was easy to uh, access other maps, maybe as you change from one map to the other. Yep. And most of the other teams, you know, did the traditional sort of 
create an A4, A3 size individual map, and then they'd have to change that map out. And, and I thought, nah, I don't like that idea. So I made a smaller map, and I put it in a booklet form, so all my 90 maps were together. I just turned a page like a book. So they're just sequential. Yep. Every just time you read, just, sequential. just flip the page. Yep, so it's sequential, and that, that meant I could look ahead, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if we were looking at weather, and by weather we got no comms, so weather was literally seat of the pants looking at the sky and trying to guess you got the midnight sun up there. So, you know, that that's helpful because you can see weather 24 hours a day yeah. as opposed to going into dark. Um, so the book format worked really well. And a couple of the other teams, when they saw that we had that book format, hey, man, can we borrow that? <laughs> so, oh, I bet. Yeah, so it was, it was a good choice. And, um, yeah, I, that was my task to, to put those together. And was were were a lot, of, and I'm sorry, guys, if you're listening to this, if you don't enjoy going out on adventures, uh, I'm asking specific questions because I'm interested. Because this this is something that I would that I want to do one day, and I haven't had the chance to sit down and Scott, ask Scott these specific questions. Were most of your maps imagery? Yes, satellite imagery. Yeah. So okay. so basically, once you got past um, uh, Dawson, but especially once you got past Circle. There are no topo maps. Gotcha. They don't exist. So all we could do was some people were using um, uh, all trails. Yeah. I particularly don't like all trails, but just for certain reasons, but that's just personal. Um, it was just as simple to use Google Maps. And then even with, with um, Google Maps, oh, sorry, uh, Google Earth. Uh, so using uh, photographic imagery, um, a lot of people don't realize those images are updated. So again, part of that preparation was to do those as late as I possibly could mm-hmm. in, in getting to the race, um, which, you know, by the time you get them laminated and take them to a, a local company to put them into book form uh, meant that, um, you know, coordinating all that, but also making sure I got the, the latest satellite image. Uh, and that was important because it's a nice river. Yeah. And especially when we got down to certain parts where there were multiple channels, those channels will change depending on how the ice creates a channel from season to season. So having the latest satellite imagery as opposed to one that was maybe six weeks old, eight weeks old, a year old, they would have been useless. Yeah. So it was that compromise of being prepared and trying to get the latest intel I could get. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Those minor, those minor details yep. that seem minor that most people wouldn't think about, uh, I think made a big difference for you guys because you oh, guys, yeah. you guys did very well. Now, when when it was time to leave New Zealand and and head to the start line, did you feel like you guys were ready? Yeah, I thought we were. Yeah, I I, I thought we were ready probably a month before we left. Okay. Um, I think you know me well enough, and and Ben and I, as I say, we, we, we know each other so well that we know which tasks um, each are going to do, and most importantly, we implicitly trust each other that that task will be done. So I'm sort of the organiser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just take naturally take those roles on, and when I take that role on, I really appreciate my other team ma- member trusting me to take them on. Mm-hmm. I don't. And Ben's the same. He takes tasks on and doesn't expect me. I trust him. Yeah. At the same time, is that funny sort of like, 
I don't really like it. People sort of keep asking me, have you done this? Have you done that? I've done it. Mm-hmm. I've got confidence. I've done it. And so we trust each other that well. So we were, we were all ready to go well in a, a month before we even got on the plane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And all right, so you, you leave New Zealand. You're feeling confident. You're feeling ready. Um, chomp, probably chomping at the bit if you feel like you've yep. been ready for a month. Yep. You fly to Whitehorse. Is that the first place? Is that where you guys arrived? No, we actually um, – so Ben went up a couple of days earlier than I did because of his friends in Canada. So we from New Zealand, we had to go to Vancouver. Okay. So he went up to Vancouver uh, for a couple of days earlier than me. Uh, I flew in. And we regrouped. Um, spent a, I spent a, a day with some of his friends. And then we flew into uh, from Vancouver to Whitehorse. Okay. Yeah. You get in Whitehorse. What's the first thing you do? So we landed in, in Whitehorse. <clears throat> the, the plane lands. Uh, there's only one flight a day, and it lands at midnight. Um, so you get into a place at midnight, which is pretty cool because it's still totally light, midnight sun. So uh, we had an Airbnb all booked, and it was already done. So first thing we did was actually just put our heads down. Um, but the, the next day, the very first day in Whitehorse, we went straight to where we were hiring the kayak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so gear. Yep. Gear, just securing the gear, making sure, obviously, we're fingers crossed. We had a lot of gear that we we're bringing from home. So we waited anxiously at the airport to see our bags. Yeah. <laughs> but we even had a plan B, like if certain things didn't turn up, you know, we sort of had a list of, we'd done some research of what Whitehorse had and might not have been the quality that we wanted. But so we had a contingency plan, but everything turned up. So, very next day, we just went to the canoe people there who are great people and uh, who we were renting our kayak from. And uh, we wanted to check the specific kayak we were going to rent. Yep. Uh, they were great. They gave us access to that kayak from day one uh, until the race. So, yeah, that's, it was sort of gear, gear. Was the boat what you, what you expected it to be? I mean, what, yep. was it? Okay. Yep. yep, the boat was uh, spot on. Um, and they're a fantastic company because they allowed us to modify where we wanted to. There was no, no sort of restrictions. Um, and in a race like that, it's quite personal. So you don't you don't modify, you know, structural things in the boat. But you're certainly you know you're, you're taping things on. You're you're just playing around with stuff to make it personalised to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and where gear was going to sit on the boat, um, and they allowed us to do that. So we had our gear pretty much squared away within a couple of days. So uh, the first the, the key things were square away the gear. From straight away as soon as we could um, and then get into the boat and see how it paddled um, and we did that twice so within the first few days we had everything squared away and then we still had about a week and a bit uh, and the reason we got there so early was this race we were supposed to be here three years ago but COVID has you know, created a, a thing internationally none of us could travel so this this race had been postponed for two years. Yeah, um, which basically meant that you know a lot of the things that we had planned um, were just sitting there on hold, including you know dealing with the, the, the canoe people. Yeah, so it was important that all that stuff that we'd been waiting on was there, was ready, was as expected. Um, we got that out of the way so early, um, we ended up having a week and a half spare. Because originally when we booked this with COVID, we wanted the ability that if one of us got it, 
we had a quarantine period mm -hmm. so that we would waste all this energy and come up here and find out we couldn't do the race. Mm -hmm. So originally our bookings are all based around getting here, having the ability to quarantine if one of us did get COVID. Um, of course, all that disappeared over those two years and we didn't have to worry about it. So so we had sort of a, a, um, a week and a bit. Are you glad you had that extra time, or what did you get? Did you get bored or antsy, or, or I mean, how'd that work out for you? No, we didn't get bored at all because, again, you know me well enough. I, as soon as we got there and we got the gear, um, and because we knew COVID, you know, was no longer that that issue. Um, I'd already done some work, so we went up and uh, up to the ice fields and spent some time up on uh, in the Kluan National Park. Um, which is just a sensational area, 2,000 glaciers. and So we camped up on the ice fields and did a bit of snowshoeing and stuff like that. So no, we were far from bored. We just filled our time and doing some other stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Was the was the 24-hour daylight cycle, Was did that pose any problems in terms of getting rest and feeling rested as, you know, before race day? It, yeah, it it did it, it it no it didn't really obviously it takes some time to adapt to that Ben it took a little bit longer to adapt than I did but even he adapted within three or four days I adapted within 24 hours um, and although you've got 24 hours light there is still a change in the light mm -hmm. so at a certain times you know you and you just realize that oh that's the trigger to sleep so yeah, I within forty eight hours I was sleeping perfectly through the night. Ben might might have taken a a day or so longer, but no, we we both we both acclimatized real quickly. That's that's good because I would expect that for some people to be a major oh. challenge in terms of being able to get good rest. Absolutely prior to race day. Oh, absolutely, and uh, we were sort of uh, we were interested in some of the other races and how late they turned up. And that's not something I would, even without the COVID thing, we would have always given ourselves a good solid week to possibly 10 days because for us, we're, you know, we're the most advanced country in the world in terms of time. So massive time difference. Yeah. Everyone knows it's traveled with a time difference that creates havoc with your sleep patterns will add in the fact that the sun's never going to go down and it's 24 hour light. And I mean light. I mean, it's light. Yeah. It's not just a little bit of twilight. It's totally light. I saw the photos. It's yeah, unbelievable. It's totally light. So um, you had those together, and I wasn't shocked that we adapted that quickly, but we'd given ourselves that was part of our plan. I was I was more interested in the fact that some people didn't. Some people turned up a couple of days before the event. Yeah. And these weren't local Canadians. Mm -hmm. These were people flying in from other countries. Mm. So, that yeah, that was strange. But maybe they had work commitments. I don't know. But um, it's certainly not something I would have done. Yeah, yeah. I'll agree with that. You know, even when I've the, – the two years I've been out to do your race, Scott, the Revenant, it's absolutely necessary when you're making that big of leap across the globe, seven days, ten days, I think it's absolutely necessary to give yourself that amount of time uh, to get into that new cycle – um, and of course you adapt very quickly. You, you have, I think you, you, well, I know you adapt more quickly than I do. You've traveled so much. You've traveled your entire life. 
I mean, it's, it's, you, you can just adapt to any environment, time change. What it takes seems like it takes you about a day, and yeah. you're, you're good to go. Yeah, that's. I think that's. You know, everyone's got strengths and weaknesses, and my my strengths or one of them is when I'm in this sort of situation is that I can adapt to anything real quickly. Yeah, no matter what it is. Yep. Um, so that's that's an advantage. So race day is coming, and was there a race briefing the day before, the few days before? When, when did when did you get the race brief? Yeah, so the race brief was the day before we started. Um, Any curveballs in that? No, not for us. I mean, there might have been for other people, but we were pretty prepared. And uh, John, the race director, is a real cool guy, uh, ex-services, ex-military, UK military. And so he's very black and white and, and, and easy to understand. There's no ambiguity as far as I'm concerned in, in, in his message. Uh, and we take that seriously. So, you know, for race briefing for us was, was easy because we'd done everything by the book. Yeah, uh, It might not have always been the way we would have done it personally, but it's his rules, not mine. Yeah. So, yeah, we were fine. So the race briefing was just a simple um, briefing in a hotel uh, with a screen, just going over nuts and bolts and uh, logistics. And, and, and there was one cutoff area, you know, how that would operate after that. You're on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had uh, in that afternoon a gear check. Uh, and he's very strict on the gear check. And there's a lot of gear uh, that is um, mandatory that you won't find in just about any other race. Um, and, you know, a good example is, you know, a proper military grade, like an Israeli bandage. You know what that is. Yeah. But most people wouldn't know what that is. And that's for, you know, serious wounds, maybe an amputation, maybe, you know, a really, really, really bad wound. Well, you know, most events, it's a couple of sticking plasters and a, you know, crepe bandage. Yeah, a little ibuprofen. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so for us, the, the, the gear check was easy because John uh, very much, you know, he vets the race. He, I think he said he had about four, just over 4,000 people try and get into the race for 40 spots. Well, he allowed 28 in the end. So he's serious. Um, and so for us, the race preparation was easy because we, we took it seriously. How much did he stress the, the grizzly bear activity? Was that stressed in the race briefing? Because it's a huge component. I mean, the race is – I mean, that time of year, the river is just thawed out. I, I imagine it's a magnet for the grizzly bear population down there along that river. I mean – yeah, I mean, he certainly stressed it, but I think he's he's a, he's a realist, um, and like a lot of things in in this life now, especially, we can we can get carried away mm-hmm. with the way that we emphasise certain things, and certainly the grizzly bears, you know, and the, or the bear um, issue, is something you had to take seriously. Yeah, um, and so that was all about you, you know keeping your food separate, keeping the clothes that you raced in separate from what you slept in, all those sorts of good things. So, on one hand, he briefed everybody appropriately, but then he brought a degree of realism, which is, guys, bears don't want that; they're not a predator on man. They're yeah. not going to flat out attack you. So there's more chance that you'll have you know do damage to yourself by not navigating right by not you know, reading the river right and maybe tipping out of your kayak or, you know, a moose. You know, one team had a moose run through their tent, you know. So um, 
I was going to mention that. It's interesting that the closest call with wildlife ended up coming from a, a, moose. From a yeah. moose and yeah. not a grizzly bear. Yeah, yeah. And, in, and in the briefing, that's exactly what John said. I mean, John highlighted the fact that there's more chance you're going to get a moose getting scared of you and, and running straight through, through your camp and taking everything with it to get into the river mm-hmm. than you are actually going to have a bear issue. So um, it's that the thing, that's the thing I like about the way John you know, runs the race. He, he does what's needed. But then he, he adds the realism like, yeah. and, and practicality to it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, guys, don't be idiots. Do what you need to do with the bears. But the chance of you running into a bear that's going to take your head off is really, really low. Yeah. And so it turned out to be. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I want to work through the race. Uh, just just kind of get a, a synopsis of the, the highs and lows day by day. Yep, yep. Uh, so total total number of days, how many? Uh, we finished in six days and fifteen hours. Six days, fifteen hours. Yep. Uh, let's let's talk about day one. Yep. Highs and lows, things you didn't expect. What what was day one like? I mean, fresh on the water, man. Yeah, fresh on the water. Uh, we had uh, there's this little section there. It's about twenty miles long, uh, out of Whitehorse, um, that, that they sometimes put the tourists on just to do a short bit of the river. So we did a trial down that area. They call it. The Burma Road, which is an area where they can get a car in and and lift your kayak out, so we'd we'd done our sea trial or, or kayak trial twice down to the Burma Road. Well, that's the first sort of twenty odd miles of the race. Mm-hmm. So when the gun went, we're off. It was really comforting. I mean, it's just like we were in our zone straight away because we'd yep. done that. Um, after you, the the first part of the first challenge in the in the race is Lake Labage, so the the river becomes a lake and that lake's just over 50 miles long um and the day we got there there wasn't a breath of wind it, it can it can be a place where uh, it's quite exposed it's quite wide with mountains on either side and conventionally people fear it or or take precautions because apparently the wind can get up the waves can get up to the point where you have to pull off you just literally a kayak or wow canoe can't can't literally navigate it um when we got there there was not a breath i've got photos i mean there was just a reflection the whole 50 miles wow but it was hot so that was the element we got super super hot so we paddled across that took us about i think about seven hours to do the 50 odd miles any current through there no zero it's just totally it's totally nothing nothing just just slack water so we took about seven hours to do the 55 miles of whatever it is. Um, and so you're hanging out to get to back into the river because this is a lake. Um, and you didn't, I suppose mentally, you didn't feel like you were making progress because you knew it would be a, a relatively slow 50-odd miles. Yeah. So you're hanging out to get to the river. So that first day was about getting across the lake, um, getting to the lake, and seeing what you had to deal with, because John will change the cutoff date at halfway depending on the condition of that lake. Gotcha. You may have to be off the lake for <coughs> half a day. Yeah. So he has to change that. So it was like, let's get to the lake. Let's see what the condition is. Wow, cool. It's flat. Great. Um, it did actually some weather did come in uh, as we were getting off the lake, and we knew it would, would affect people behind us, but. And what's behind you don't care. Yeah. Um, so, but we knew some people might be affected. 
So that day was back onto the back onto the river. Now, what once you crossed the lake, Scott? Was there any sort of dam or anything? Nope. So it just goes flows uh, right straight, straight into back straight into the river. Straight back into the river. Huh. On, a, on the sort of right hand side of the uh, um, of the of the lake, and even even finding the outlet is a, I mean, it's not self evident. You know, I bet because it's so so air, so large, but the 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 lake challenge, and that was really only about the boredom of going across completely slack water um, and under re- really hot conditions, then became very quickly the next challenge that we had to be off the water in 18 hours. And we were told that the next section, even under conventional water conditions, doesn't have that many places you can actually get off the river. So the next challenge was, okay, let's see what that means. Well, man... There was nowhere to get off the river. I mean, it was sketchy. So then it became sort of, you know, paddling and trying to put miles behind you. We wanted to, in that first day, we wanted to try and get, and I'm going to be in kilometres here, so I'll flip it round to miles the best I can, but we wanted to get around 190 to 200 kilometres under our belt that first day. We thought that would be a pretty good start. So that's roughly about 110 miles under our belt that first day um and so once we hit that river it was like okay we've got to bank some miles now Mm -hmm. and so we did and we were paddling well and then all of a sudden the next challenge is okay the 10 o'clock's looming Mm -hmm. and you think okay two hours is plenty of time to find somewhere to get off the river well wow two hours goes by fast oh man and there was just like nowhere to get off no eddies nothing and so you were sort of like, okay, let's keep paddling. And then the 10 o'clock kept coming, coming, coming. And then the two-hour period then started to look like two minutes, not two hours. Yeah. Because we would go for an hour and see nothing. So in the end, we, I think we pulled off the river at about, I don't know, it must have been. We started looking at 10. We then changed tact and thought, okay, there's so little few places. Instead of thinking of using the last hour, of that grace period, we thought we better start looking. So we actually, I think, started looking about 9.30 just to start seeing if we could see some patterns. We couldn't. So at 10, we started to really look hard, and I think we got off the water eventually at 11.30. The place we finally got off was sketchy as. I mean, we ended up sort of identifying it in advance, and we were approaching it, and the flow was reasonable there. So the only way we could navigate to it was to actually go past it and then paddle up river. And it was pretty swift there, no eddy. So we paddled like madmen and there was a log coming off a big bank. And that was the only way that we thought we could secure it out of the flow. So we just paddled like heck and just paddled straight into this log and hoped the front of the kayak would sort of lock into the log, which it did. And that meant that the front of the kayak was semi-secured. And then um, I think Ben might have got out first, but we put the paddle in between ourselves and the shore to see how deep it was. It was what would have been well over my head. So then it was a matter of, you know, how do you get the back end of the kayak sort of in so that... So, you know, we just played around with it and finally managed to get both of us out. And then the only way we could secure it was to go to the front of it and haul it up this bank. <laughs> but we couldn't haul it up enough so it was flat, so it just stayed on about a 50-degree angle. 
Wow. And then from there we had to try and get some gear out, which eventually we sort of did. Um, but as soon as we got out of the boat, I mean, man, the Yukon has, I think, 99% of the world's mosquito population. I'm sure that number has to be correct. <laughs> and they're the size of birds. So, man, we just got attacked straight away. So, you know, you're trying to get this boat out. The, the, your legs, your face, your arms, I mean, they're just in swarms. And they bite straight through your clothing, like straight through it. Man. So, you know, you're sort of doing that, and then you try to go set up a tent, and then you're thinking about trying to get sleep. So, yeah, it was an interesting first day. Did you find your little flat spot up there? Uh, there was no really flat, but there was a pretty cool sort of moss. So we were in pr- that particular camp was in pretty um, thick you know, tree uh, spruces and, and yeah. it had all this moss. And, and there was a sort of, um, I don't know what it is, but it had a big thorn on it. So that would rip your skin. So I sort of cleared it, just enough to get the footprint of the tent in. Yeah. Uh, once we got into the tent, we found that the moss was great because we did have our sleeping pads down but we could have almost gone without them yeah it was that lovely and spongy so, awesome yeah and take you take your six, full six hours you have to uh you gotta take your full six hours but obviously you want to be on the water at six hours yeah so you're getting up early so i think that morning we might have got up at about like we set the alarm for about three in the morning got up broke camp um at that stage, the water in the river is sort of drinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we could talk about what happens later, but at that stage, it is drinkable. But we'd, we'd bought some water from Whitehorse. We, we thought, well, it's just another day. We don't have to filter water, yeah. speed things up. So um, we uh, pretty much in the mornings, we eat cold. So just bang water in our, in our uh, dehydrated meals, uh, pack camp up. Um, got in the boat and, and left and then we would just one of us would paddle and steer mm-hmm. um, with it with a paddle because it's a rear the kayak we had was a rear steering kayak the, the back person was uh, using the rudder pedals um, so the front person can just guide it with their paddle so one would eat the other would paddle and then swap so that we're, we're moving on the river mm-hmm. um, so we packed up you know normally to set up a camp would take us about 15 minutes maybe um, break down about the same. Yep. Yep. On the water, cold breakfast. Yep. Are you eating, one one person eating, one person paddling? Yep, yep. So basically um, prep for our food uh, and how it works in the race is, and you, you I know you do the same. So we work out a day pack of, of snacks, and so and they're all allocated per day so that literally when we're going into our food, we're not thinking about what's there. You're just pulling out one Ziploc bag. It's got everything you need for the day. It goes on the, on the, on the kayak, and that's it, on, on, in your cockpit. And so you, you, it's, that's fast. Um, again, we've allocated meals uh, in terms of our dehy for both our breakfast and our dinner. Uh, so you're just pulling one of those each, putting some water in, locking it up. Uh, I, everyone's got their own different way of doing it, but I like to put it down in between my PFD or if I'm hiking in whatever I've got as clothing I like to secure it um, with my pack straps against my body and 20-30 minutes later you get a, a smidge of warmth back in it from your body yeah so, you taught me that trick yeah so the water's you know, just a little bit warm mm-hmm. it's just a it's just a mind psychosomatic thing but it, it feels good that you've got some warmth um, 
So uh, yeah, so we just uh, we do that, and then uh, yeah, one eats the other paddles, and then we swap. Anything stand out from day two? No, other than fact that you know, uh, day two you're in your groove. Yeah. Um, day two. So from a process point of view, it felt really good. Uh, we we made good mileage. Um, we were sort of aiming to average uh, a, a number. And that day we actually did our biggest day because day two was about day one when you would be difficult um, because of that big flat water section. So we that's why we set our our side on a on a smaller number. Um, day two had to be a bigger number so that we could hit our average mm-hmm. because we wanted to average roughly 150 miles a day. So day two was about having a big day so we could pick that average back up and give ourselves that little bit of, um, you know, banking a little bit of um, leeway for ourselves if things were going to go wrong. So mm-hmm. I think day two we did nearly 300 kilometres. Wow. On that second day. So that's, what's 300 kilometres? It's about 170 miles, 100, maybe 180 miles in that second day. So that that's what yeah. stood out. How, I mean, how do you get that type of distance in that in one day? I mean, was the was the the flow in that section in day two? Did, was it just real no. strong flow, or is it just no, just working hard? Or yeah, just just working hard and uh, minimizing um, minimizing stops. Yeah, which, which you know you're giving yourself some leeway so that later on when when more fatigue sets in and you've got to take more breaks, you're giving yourself that opportunity to do it. So. The, the, the strategy for most teams, I think, was pretty much the same, and that was an hour on paddling and three minutes off because that's how we worked. So you paddle, talk, and whatever you need to do, but you didn't pee, you didn't eat, you didn't do anything for an hour. And then that three-minute period was when you did whatever you needed to do. If you were cold, if you put a jacket on, whatever you needed to do, you did it then mm-hmm. and too bad in the next hour. You yep. just have to hunker down and put up with it. You can that's, do anything for an hour. Correct, and that's the way you got. You know, we got speed. So, so that second day, you know, nav went well. Every everything went well, but it really was about just putting your head down mm-hmm. and minimizing all those little things that later in the race you may have to do because your fatigue levels were, were yep. at, a, at a different degree. That's smart, man. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. Now, you mentioned the heat earlier. Yep. What kind of temperature? Are, are, are you looking at? I would say, I mean, it fluctuated during the race, but when I talk about a, a, a hot area in the race, I think we were probably in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's warm. Yeah. Um, camp night two, any drama there, finding camp? No. Uh, well, yeah, it's drama again, finding camp. Um, but, you know, once you, once you get used to drama, then you plan for drama. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, a bit of drama. Um, but a better a better campsite, like we had um, a slightly easier place to secure the boat. Still a similar type of setup uh, with the because with the level so high, normally there would be a bank, and then there might be a little bit of sand or rock or something that you could beach the kayak. But what had happened was the river was so high it had flooded back into the trees. Hmm. So. Yeah, a lot of the time you were looking, you're thinking, even if I went in there, I'd be in a swamp. Yeah. You know, so, but no, night night two was, yeah, slightly better, but a similar type of camp in the bush, 
um, yes, a, a, a bit of a challenge to get the kayak around and, 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 and paddling upstream and mm-hmm. using a ferry gliding technique and so to get in there. So, but yeah, at that stage, you know, you've settled into the into the race and you've you've settled into the obstacles. This is what it's going to be. It's what it's going to be. That's right. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. 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 So day day two was a real good day because we we were focused on that mileage and um, and it, it, we we nailed it. Yeah. So day two all about building that building in that cushion. Yep. So that when fatigue sets in, yeah, I, I totally get that. That's really smart too because now you could get carried away with that. It, I think you oh, could yeah. go too hard oh, trying yeah. to build that cushion, and then you put yourself in the hole. You got to be smart when you're doing that. Um, but if you're smart when you do it, you know the fatigue's coming. Yep. So if you do it smartly, um, it is it it's just the way to go. Correct. I did, did the the first time I did the Ultima Hall, yep. the same thing I did. Yeah. First two days, you know, our goal, mileage goal was 20 miles a day. Which, by the way, guys, the Ultima Hall is a different river in a different boat. Yep. So when you hear Scott talking about covering 150 miles, 160, 170 miles a day, um, understand that depending if you if you are planning your own paddle mission, don't shoot for those numbers yeah. on every body of water in every type of craft, all right? This is these guys are um are covering massive, massive amounts of miles. I, I still can't comprehend it, um, but that was the same thing. So I think yep. that that you got to do it, but you got to do it smart and not put yourself in a hole. Yep. Um, all right, let's move on to day three. Yep. Day three. This is this put us halfway through the race essentially. Yeah. Nearly. So, yeah. Yeah. So day three was again a good day because um, there was a couple of features in in the race that gave you a goal to hit. So one of them was Carmax, which is just a, a very, very small settlement. And uh, I think there's three bridges over the Yukon, which is amazing. A thousand miles. Well, to, to, over the two. Oh, the no. entire river. Yeah, yeah there's wow. like three, maybe four max. But yeah, there's just no bridges. Mm. So, you know, we knew we were going to go through Carmax. And Carmax was one of the places that if you were watching or you know, John as the support person, as, as the race director, that's one place before the halfway that you could possibly get out, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, you know, that was nice to go through Carmax. And then after Carmax, there's uh, a, a, a rapid called Five Fingers. And um, because of the, the level of the water, uh, and we knew the Yukon Quest had gone down there sort of weakened a bit before us, we knew there was a lot of carnage down there during that that race, um, and so that was something to look forward to. Was you know what was going to happen through this particular rapid, um, and uh, so that was nice to go through Carmax. That was a goal. I think we must have gone through there. I don't know, maybe around lunchtime, and then it was only I think about twenty miles down the river we, we hit the the Five Fingers, and, and we went through no problems at all. But after the race, you know, we heard. You know, people came out. A couple of couple of boats came out, and uh, the thing about that rapid is that there is no eddy, uh, and there's fast, fast flow through that rapid. Um, so extraction, if you come out, you are going to be floating in that really cold water for upwards of thirty minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. 
you just can't get out. Mm-hmm. And it, it happened that uh, we found out after the race that a canoe went down and John very rarely, I don't think he's ever put any safety at that particular point, but his experience with the race before us that always puts a safety boat there on the other side of the rapid because it's a much bigger race. It's only going halfway. It's it's not unsupported. It's fully supported. Yeah. Um, I think he, he must have got a bit of intel and decided that maybe we should put a safety boat there, which he did. Um, and uh, apparently a bunch of German tourists came down in a canoe. They came out, had no PFDs on, had nothing secured. It was their lucky day. John was there. Mm. Ordinarily, there'd be no one there. We would have been looking at four or five fatalities. Yeah. Without question. Mm-hmm. So they they were very lucky. So for us, uh, yeah, we, we went through there. <clears throat> Obviously, a, a big size rapid's always a bit of excitement. So that broke the boredom up a little bit mm-hmm. um, and uh, just broke the day up. So they, you know, going through Carmax and, uh, and then um, the, other, the other thing about that day was uh, we had, we knew we were coming into a section where the White River joins the, the Yukon. And the White River is uh, a, also a substantially sized river, not the size of the Yukon, but it, it, it adds flow. Um, the problem with it is it's filthy. And not filthy polluted. It's filthy because uh, thousands of years ago there were volcanoes up there. Mm. And so ash still is in the water. And so when you reach where they, the two join, the water that's relatively clear um, becomes like mud. So, wow. And so much so... You can hear it as you paddle. Wow. So you're paddling through this stuff, and there's this swishing noise underneath your kayak as it just grabs to this mud. And it's a bizarre feeling because it adds drag to the boat. Yeah. And I think some of it psychologically, the fact that every time you have a stroke, you hear the boats go a little shh, shh, like this, you know. So that was interesting hitting that. And, um, we also, in terms of finding a camp, <clears throat> was our sort of like what we did on the Ultimaha uh, with you with your uh, your mission, is that we knew that the halfway mark was coming, and it was the only place that had a cutoff time. Mm-hmm. So again, you think about your strike zone. You think about do I try and paddle right to Dawson, and we weren't allowed to stop in Dawson. Mm-hmm. Part of the rules were unless you're pulling out. You cannot stop. You must go straight through. So we um, we had sort of looked at the maps and, and picked up a couple of areas because now the, the, the river started to widen and we started to get some sandbars start to appear in, in the middle of the river, albeit that because of the high level, those sandbars <laughs> were pretty small and pretty sketchy. Yeah. But at least we knew there was going to be a little bit more opportunity. So we had chosen a place on the map which we thought would put us in a real easy position the next morning just to paddle through the cutoff zone and you know, it'd be, be, be no problem at all. Um, it must have been about, I don't know, it might have been about 9 o'clock at night. And man, this absolutely vicious storm turns up. 
I mean, the lightning and, and, and the wind came up, very much like the wind we got on the Ultima, mm-hmm. but maybe a little bit more wind. Um, and you had the cross currents of the, of the White River and this, this sort of mud. And we just looked at it and thought, you know, we can stay out in this weather. And, and the lightning was vicious. So it was just really big, big strikes, which we would find out later on next day was, would, you know, was creating fires. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we chose to, we saw a good spot. It was probably half an hour to three quarters of an hour earlier than we had planned to, to stop. And it was outside of the normal 10 o'clock curfew. Yeah. But you, you're allowed to start. You're allowed, to, you're allowed to stop earlier, but you can't start earlier. Your six hours then has to start from 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, yeah. So you're losing time. Mm-hmm. But look, we just, we just looked at the conditions and we just thought, nah, it's a bit dangerous out here. So we, we just thought it was smarter to, uh, to set up. So we, we set up um, on this little muddy sandbar in the middle of nowhere, and uh, that was pretty good camp, actually. Uh, it rained um, during the night, and... Uh, you know, it was fine. Next morning, we packed camp up and, mm-hmm. and hit Dawson City, and yeah, it was cool. Yeah, a lot of people probably don't under well, maybe some people understand, but you've got this immovable. Scott calls it an immovable object, right? Yep. Which is Dawson, yep. which is the the ha- checkpoint that you have to go through. Yep. Um, and so you can't stop at the checkpoint. So, you know. There, therein lies the decision. How close do we want to get to this thing before we pull off? And you're taking in the the you're taking the the conditions into consideration. You're taking into the fact that okay, well, if we stop here, we know we can get through Dawson yep. tomorrow within the the you know comfortably within the cutoff time. So then the smart decision becomes to do exactly what you guys did, even though it might cost you an hour. Yep. Um, it could have cost you the entire race. If, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that. Those are the smart decisions that people have to be able to make if you're going to operate in these environments, and they don't come intuitively to people. I've 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 learned they do not come in. Those decisions, for some reason, are not intuitive to people. Yeah. You're, in uh, general. Yeah, I think you're totally right, and um, <clears throat> that's one of those learned experiences, one of those learned skills that. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think we, we talked about it a number of times on the Altamaha mission, you know, when you have something that is unknown, that could be something which could end your mission or substantially change it in a negative manner. You look at the conditions you've got now, and if they're good, you make you take you what take you've got it. now. That's right. Even though, worst comes scenario, you lose a bit of time versus possibly being put out of the race. Yep. So it was. It's, it's a simple, fast decision for us, but you're dead right. Most people struggle with being able to identify them and make them. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All right. So, bad lightning storm, bad wind, bad rain. That was the first bad weather you guys had had out there. Correct. Um, how many miles did you guys make day three? Do you remember? Roughly? Yeah, we, we made, I think, about 157 miles. Okay. Somewhere around there. Okay. Yep. Day four... Let's talk about day four, moving through your yep. checkpoint, and what happens on day four. Day four was a cool day because the river changed. Um, we had the change in the White River, 
uh, coming in and we had that area of there where it was quite wide um, and we had the dirty river. So you've now got used to the dirty river and, and the, the, the little bit of drag on the boat. Um, we hit Dawson City. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not sure why they call it a city. <laughs> it's, a, it's a collection of a, f- of a few few buildings from what we could see. Yeah. Um, but you you turn you make a left-hand bend at Dawson City and the mountains become closer and the, the hills actually become semi-mountains, beautiful rock formations. And I, I don't know w- why I can, but I can, I can almost see a river take an altitude change. Mm-hmm. And I could see it was like paddling downhill. It was awesome, this awesome feeling of you've got over halfway, the scenery's changed, the river's changed, um, it had become narrow. There were more bends. It was more like a conventional river. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a lift. Yeah. So that first morning, um, after after we crossed through Dawson, uh, the stress of making a cutoff, although we made it easily, but you still got to make it, um, was behind you. Yeah. Um, Say so the conditions changed. Um, it was beautiful paddle. Yeah. It really was a beautiful paddle. I have to ask because you you did mention significant you should mention it the ash that coming in off the white river and obviously the the water quality has been compromised what are you doing for drinking water at this point on day four so drinking water um we had um taken a substantial amount of water with us being Um, how much uh well you know i don't drink a lot of yeah i know that so we took um i had a i had a full bladder i use a bladder in the back i'm a pfd so that's uh, that bladder takes about half, just under half a gallon. Okay, uh, it's of personal water there. And then I had two small bottles, five hundred mil, which is I don't know what's that a pint or something like that. Had those full, and Ben had about the same. And then we we bought a couple of um, just big fruit juice bottles, the biggest we could find, and emptied them out and and filled those with water. So we probably had collectively maybe three gallons max on mm-hmm. board but we we don't we're pretty good at, at, at rationing our you're water. rationing it yeah yeah so we we th- so we that's all we'd used okay up to that point so we hadn't had to filter anything okay up up to basically day four um and so day four was the first day that we had to start thinking about you know where we were going to get other water yeah but filtering Everybody takes different uh, methods, and we'd done our we'd done our research, and we were lucky enough that one other New Zealander had done the race, so that was great to be able to talk. His name's Ian Huntsman, so we were lucky enough to talk to Ian, and get his um, you know, and he's an experienced racer, so you know what Ian would do, you you would you know very trustingly presume mm-hmm. that that would be a good thing to do, um, and we'd. He told us, and a lot of our intel said that most of the commercial filters were useless. Oh yeah, yeah. and that that ash, yeah, they just were not going to work yeah. when you had that much solid content. Mm-hmm. So we took a simple approach for for filtering water. Uh, we just put uh, female pantyhose, which work as a really good pre-filter. Um, so we would just um, pre-filter the water, but even then, if you're smart, you don't really need to do that. Um, you can, if you take water uh, out of the river. In, in your plastic bottles and just let it stand overnight, a good proportion of that, if not all of it, uh, will just 
settle at the bottom. Settle, yeah. So we would just do that, decant off the top, um, and um, throw throw a purification tablet in it, um, just to be sure, mm-hmm. um, and you're away. So that's that. So water was never an issue for us. Okay. From that perspective, and I think uh, taking that bit of extra water for the slight extra weight um, was worth it because you're looking at you know maybe. 15, 20 minutes to purify enough water, well, that's 20 minutes of sleep. Yeah. So yeah. we just reasoned that the, the equation of a little bit more weight in the boat for a few days versus getting some extra sleep, we were better to be fueling our body with sleep than we were with water. Yep. Um, and we're pretty good. We don't drink a lot of water. And I drink a lot less than Ben, so we work quite well together where he eats a bit more than I do. So I, you know, the fact that I don't eat as much and drink as much allowed him to take the excess. So mm-hmm. it was a nice team balance. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So day four, you move through the checkpoint. You get the pressure of that behind you. The river changes, narrows up, uh, becomes winding. Which I like that. So I like those types of yep. section of river too. I do too. Man, yeah. those big, long, wide. <laughs> Straits where you can just see four or five miles ahead, and yeah. you know it just uh, yeah, those are it's what the eggs for. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like it to wind through. Um, yeah. So any any anything else from day four as you move into that oh, yeah. kind of new section? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, let's say the first section of day four, remembering that we're on the river at four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So you know because of the midnight sun. You know, your feeling of time is completely different than under normal circumstances. <laughs> so, you know, you're starting your day at 4 o'clock. You're on the water at 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, so, you know, by 10 o'clock in the morning, when you conventionally think, I've only been up for a couple of hours, you've already been, you know, you've been paddling for six hours. Sure. So, um, so you know, the first part of the day was awesome. Um, and then the river started to widen just a little bit, but it was probably more that the mountains or the... The, the, yeah, the, the, the altitude, things of altitude moved back a little bit, so the mm-hmm. ground was a bit lower. But that's when we started to, we, we saw our first um, fire. And it was a distance away. It was on the, the true left of the river as we were paddling. It must have been about, I don't know, maybe four in the afternoon that I sort of spotted the first one. And, you know, fires are sort of well known to be a, a potential risk on the, on the river. And we sort of thought, oh, it didn't look like much. And, you know, maybe an hour or so later, it sort of semi-cleared. But then another hour later, it got worse. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. So that the rest of that day was characterized by smoke. And not to the levels that was worrying, but it was that of that level of this could go either way. This mm-hmm. could get worse or it could go away. And paddling into the evening when we started to thinking about looking for somewhere to stop on that day we in front of us we saw uh, another competitor uh, two lovely ladies from Alberta and they were in the kayaks and the canoe section and uh, we came upon them and they were floating around having a bit of dinner and one of them was brushing her hair which I couldn't quite work out but they were real characters really we talked to them after the race Love, lovely girls and um, they were having fun so we passed them up, and we got to a place on the river that was a point of interest, and it was a historic old fort. I think it was called Fort Sherrick or something like that, and um, 
So we thought, oh, that could be you know, on the map. That looks like it could be a, a place to camp. And it turned out to be, we, we found an easy place to put the kayak up and we'd no sooner beached the kayak and in come the girls behind us in their canoe. So we yanked our boat out of the way because they, they couldn't beach if we didn't move. So yeah. we moved our kayak out of the way and, and sort of assisted them get out of the water. And and uh, we went to the top of this bank and I could see a building along to the right of us, which must have been part of the old old fort. And you wouldn't believe it, along comes a, 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 a side-by-side. So these are First Nations people and uh, just living out in the back of nowhere. So I, I, I said to this gentleman, I said, you know, look, you know, we're in this race and he was very nice. And I said, uh, look, we're actually planning on putting our tents up here. And he said, no, 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 this is our land. Please don't do that. But if you just walk along to the fort, that's government-owned, you're more than welcome to set it up there huh so we did it's sort of strange. i mean we hadn't seen people for days and <laughs> this guy turns up on the side beside um so we did that and the girls joined us they set their camp up somewhere else and uh in the same vicinity um so that was really cool and uh just as we were going to bed uh looked up on the ridge line and the fire broke the ridge line in massive massive flames but we were okay because that was on the other side of the river mm-hmm. and the river acts as a fire break. Yeah. But what was going through our mind is what would tomorrow be like in terms of smoke. So again we woke up at four or we woke up at three thirty to be on the water by four and the smoke was just everywhere. <laughs> I mean it was really everywhere down on the river. I can only imagine too that that smoke it's it's probably settling in that river valley, right? Yep. So. Yep. Uh, now, what's that do? What's that smoke? How is it affecting you phys- physically? So we, you know, we were probably lucky in the sense that we never got it right down where it could have been really bad, but we got it close. Mm-hmm. And it seemed talking to other other competitors after race that maybe wind or so some everyone's sort of story on how long that smoke lasted and how far it came down was slightly different. But for us, the next day we started off in smoke and it just slowly got worse. And it got to a point where if you get a little bit of evaporation out of the river, you'll get a a very small zone. Then you can physically see it where there's no smoke. So the the smoke's not settled all the way down to the surface of the water. No, it was probably, I mean, remembering that in a kayak, your bum is actually sitting slightly below the water line. So your head is only probably in feet, maybe two and a half feet above the actual water. Yeah. Right? So it was sitting basically at head height, just a, just a little bit above my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that's what it looked like. That there's, there's still some carbon sitting in there. So the, that next day was about moving to more smoke. And I, I, I've got, I, you know, got a memory of just getting in your eyes, and then the it was a hot day, and underneath that smoke, it becomes sort of suffocating. Oh man! You know the the air yeah. just doesn't move. So I think I took a little little sort of selfie video at one stage, and uh, I've looked at that, and you know my eyes are just bloodshot as heck, and I'm sort of speaking pretty slow at this stage, going. You know, like, 
man, we're in the smoke. When's this stuff going to end? And it turned out we were nearly two and a half days in smoke. Um, so we're on, and we're on day five now. We're on day yeah, five. And when I say two and a half days, remembering it had started a day before. Yeah. So halfway from, through from, day four. When we saw that those first fires and so, but we were going in and out of smoke. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, okay, yeah, okay, now it's okay. Oh, it's a bit bad. Oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. We thought that would continue. But this next day, it was just, I mean, we got very close to, uh, we had the conversation a couple of times. Part of the mandatory gear is uh, sm- a smoke mask and goggles. Because um, ultimately, if it got really bad, you've literally got to get out of your kayak and get get into the water. Yeah, that's just that's your last sort of port of call in terms of safety, and hopefully it blows over. Um, and we had that conversation several times. Like, do you think we need to stop? Is, is this now the time to get the goggles out, get the masks out? What would have been that point? I mean, what what were you guys? Uh, talk, how were you guys talking through that? We we were just talking through that based on how we were, you know, good comms and how we were feeling. Um, and we were lucky that. You know, you get just when you get to that point where you think you might do it, you just get enough clearance that the eyes would either stabilize, and that was part of it, not get worse, or just a tiny wee improvement. Mm-hmm. And you're in a race, so you don't think about you don't think about stopping lightly. Yeah, you know, you just don't. So you think, oh well, do I really want to stop? By the time we find a place, get out, get your mask out, get those on. So it has to be. You know, you have to reach that point where you know you have no other choice. Mm-hmm. So we kept being offered very slim choices to continue. Mm. So, but that that day was characterized by that for me, uh, and Ben, uh, I think, would tell you the same. Any effects on on your lungs? No, no respiratory. I I never felt any. You know, obviously you got the smell mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of thing. But no, it was it was more just eyes um, and this heat this really suffocating oppressive heat oppressive heat yeah that just made you know you, you struggle not struggle but just made your breathing all those things that on on an event you try not to think about because they're mother nature's automatic systems in, in your body yeah you start focusing on those things mm. and once you start focusing on those you know you're not far away from trouble mm. wow would you it, now? I know you don't generally look at things in terms of of difficulty because you just you're processing things yeah. in in a different way. But if for the listeners, would you say that was the one of the most difficult day day five because of the smoke? No, no, no. Okay, no. The most difficult day was yet to come. Okay, all right. Yeah. So. Day five, how many miles did you guys get day five? Again, we were right on the money there. So we were, we were doing that sort of between 150 and 160 Stayed miles. real consistent then. Real consistent. We had the paddling down. You know what it's like, Chad. I'm sure when you went out on missions of, in, in the military and, 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 and your, in, your, in your public life, when you're on a long mission, the body's a wonderful thing because it's only the brain that's telling you to stop. <laughs> you know, so you just got, you know, we knew like in these sort of missions that you just got to get over the pain of the first three days. By day four, the brain goes, well, this, this idiot's just going to keep going, so I might as well switch off all these false indicators, you know? <laughs> and you just get in the groove. 
Yeah. You know, all that pain means nothing. Yeah. And the, and you can really start focusing on on the, on on the true dangers. Uh-huh. You know. I mean feeling a bit of pain in your arm or your bum or so it's not a danger. It's just an irritation. Yeah. So by day 4 both of us were like in that zone mm-hmm. and many times we could have pushed a little bit harder but you know for for other reasons we might, you know, smoke and other things. You don't want to push to the point where you break yourself. Mhm. Because this is an unsupported race, you know. You break yourself in a hundred-mile running race or something. Hey, the the guy up the road at the at the, the support station is going to come down and pick you up in his car. Yeah. Um, you know, John told us once we get past Dawson, we had to be self-sufficient for at least two and a half days. Couldn't even get a helicopter in there. No, no one was coming. So. That gets real serious. That it, gets yeah, that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, you, there, there's something called the. We call it, in the military, we called it the golden hour. Yep. If you had a patient with a significant injury, you broke yourself. Yep. If you could get that patient to a hospital or a trauma center within an hour, yep. that golden hour, that time window, yep. there's a high, high percentage you could save that person's life. Yep. You're talking about days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you, no, no one's coming. No choice. No yeah. choice. No choice. So, therefore, your decision-making. you got to be smart. Yeah. Your decision-making has to alter and all those little things about stopping or or potentially breaking something because your lifeline is your boat and your paddle hmm. and your food. You know, those are your lifelines. Uh, yes, we had a sat phone with us, which, um, you know, if, if he checks your sat phone, if you've used it, you're disqualified. Yeah. So, so it's there really for that critical moment where you cannot go on. But... You know, if I set the set, if I call, set the sat phone off, we were there for at least two and a half days before someone came. So therefore, you thought about, well, there's no point in setting the sat phone off. Yeah. What's the point? So I've just got to, I just got to be smart enough that I don't, I don't break my boat. I don't, you know, lose my equipment. I don't do those things that would not just end my race; they could end my life. I, I love, I love that kind of pressure, man. Mm. That's what's so great about this race that you did. It's the the that's real. Oh yeah, that's real, I right. mean you don't find you don't find that in ultra running. You don't find that in in any other sports. It's it's no. it's also canned. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and I'm not not, not putting those no. those activities down, but they just don't have that component. No, no, they just don't have that component. And I, and that pressure, it's what. Sh- that real, true pressure that Scott's talking about, that is what sharpens you, man. Oh, yeah. That, sharpens that you, right? is the next level yep. of being becoming an operator, a, a human, a mental toughness, all those components. That's the next level is when the consequences are that real. Absolutely. So yep. I love that kind of pressure. That's what I love so much about this event that you did. Yep. Um, well, likewise, that's what you love so yeah, much, the unsupported nature yeah, of it. Absolutely. Um. Day five camp. Yep. Hard to find. Good camp. No, no day, so day five um, was um, the day that we went again. It was a good day because we had a number of milestones to hit. So, again, it breaks the day up psychologically yeah. for you. Um, so, prior to that, we had, um, we had circle to go through, which was just that. There's nothing there. You can't even... I mean, you could see it in the distance. But it is the start of the flats. 
which we can talk about, which is okay. the, the most dangerous part of the race. Um, and uh, and then eventually, of course, you're going through Eagle, which where we're crossing to Alaska. Yeah. Um, and where you, you pick up a, a phone to, to, to sort of tell them you're coming into America. Um, so nice little milestones. And the camp we had that night was again on a sandbar. And it was one of the nicer camps. Um, one of the things you do there when you get out at night, um, so you don't just sort of land and say, this is it. You, you land and then you check the site out. And in this case, you're checking it for animals. Yeah. So we're checking it for, so we could see some decent fresh moose prints, but there was no bear prints or anything. So you're good to go. So that was, that was a really nice spot. We had a really nice, um, sunset, if you want to call it that, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a good, got a good rest. It was just a good night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good night. I want to talk about the flats, and I don't know where's the best place to talk about that mm -hmm. while we're still on day five or into day six. I don't know. Yeah, they one one sort of morphs into the other. <sighs> yeah, yeah. But, I want to talk about that because it seems like a. Uh, I want to understand what you mean when you say the flats and yeah. what makes them so difficult to navigate through. And yeah, yeah, it's a whole sounds like a whole new component. Yeah. So what happens is the river. Um, obviously reaches a point where two things happen. Um, the mountains subside on either side, so the catchment area becomes this massive, massive flatland. The elevation of the river, the drop of the river, becomes very minimal. Um, so again, it allows the river to, to deviate mm -hmm. into what we call braids. So instead of one or two single ch you know, main channels or only channels, and up to this point the race is, the river's really been a single channel, maybe mm -hmm. the odd tributary, but mainly a single channel river. It becomes a multi-braided or multi-channeled river. So um, imagine the river now is um, about three miles wide of multiple channels, mm -hmm. hundreds of islands, if not thousands of just sandbars that are little islands. Now, under ordinary circumstances, that would be hard enough to navigate, but we're, in New Zealand, we have braided rivers not that wide, but we're used to, to, to following and navigating through channel, multi-channel waterways. Um, but what made this interesting was that it was flooded. The highest river level they'd ever recorded. Mm-hmm. So instead of channels, it would look like a lake. Wow. All these islands everywhere. Everything looked the same. Um, but there's still flow, and there's cross flows everywhere. And because we had chosen to go in a kayak, um, the draft of a kayak is a bit lower, greater than a, than a canoe. Yeah. And it was flooded so much that, you know, the first challenge was would you get grounded? And we got grounded a couple of times. Um, and you're sitting in your kayak in the middle of this massive, massive waterway with flows going in every every single direction. And I remember the first time we got we got grounded and it was Ben, and it was the rear of the stern of the kayak that got grounded. So you've got to release the weight there, which, you know, under normal circumstances, the rear person would get out. Well, you know, Ben started to get out, and then the sort of penny drops. Well, if he gets out and then, you know, releases the kayak, 
and the kayak hits the flow and he can't get in, mm -hmm. I'm in the front of the kayak with no steering. So I'm going in one direction and he's standing in the middle of a waterway. Yeah. Three miles wide. <laughs> um, I wish you luck swimming anywhere because the flows were everywhere and there was yeah. no eddies. So obviously, you know, very quickly you, you, you change your plan and go, okay, if we're going to get out, we both get out because there's strength in numbers. There's no, there's no point in actually one being in the kayak sailing off to the never-never in one direction and the other guy standing on his lonesome with no, yeah, no equipment, nothing. Uh, he's dead. So, um, so, you know, we changed our plan and we both got out and we managed to, you know, get it off and jump back in the kayak and away we went. So, you know, there was obstacles like that, but the biggest challenge was the navigation. Um, normally on those maps we had, you would see channels, distinct channels, and then you would visualize those. They yeah. would be in front of you. So here we are looking at a map that's got channels, but they don't exist. And the yeah, and the stuff you're getting grounded on is stuff that would usually be above the waterline that's creating the channels. It would normally be a campsite. And it's <laughs> all underwater. It's gone. Huh. So, you know, now what we're trying to do is navigate with a map and a and, and a GPS unit that has land on it. But the land doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden you know, you look at your GPS or you look at our map of Google Maps and we're looking at a channel that is a distinct channel on the map that has, you know, a big island in front of you, two islands to your left and a third one to your right. Only one that exists is the big one in the middle. The others aren't, aren't there visually. They just mm. don't exist. So you've got to take these channels and in your mind say well they are there it's got to be <laughs> sort yeah. of to the left of this one little one little um feature that you can see yeah um and i think the word that both ben and i used was intimidating we used that several times once we started moving around the flats and then it became the most intimidating navigation we've ever done because you got it wrong the consequences were horrendous but you know we we uh, you know like anything there's nothing there's no point in being intimidated there's no point in getting emotional so you, but you know you go through that for a, a, an hour or something yeah and then you get into your groove and it is what it is and and we started a move and 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 Ben did an exceptional job in the back of the kayak you know we worked together but you know I I'll, I'll give Ben you know the marks for being the main navigator through there, he did an exceptional job. So yeah, you're you're navigating channels uh, that show on your map, but you're navigating trying to stay in these channels, and the the dry land or the terrain features that show on your map are just a few inches under the water. Yeah, and yeah. you're trying to stay in the channel based off imagining Correct. what it would look like if those terrain features were actually above the surface, which they should be. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah and, you, you know, I want to say, well, you know, why, why couldn't you just go to right or left bank and follow the main bank? But I imagine the bank just changed consistently because... Well, there is there is really no no bank, um, and you know if you're going to try and go across 
three miles wide of river where there's cross flows everywhere. Yeah. You're going to be there for days. Yeah, that's I, I'm trying. So, yeah, it's the first time could, I've really understood we, why you couldn't do that. Yeah, you just you would have been there for days. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, those because the channels had filled with water, even the expected flow, by looking and saying, "Well, we should be in this channel, therefore the flow should be going this way," wouldn't exist in in that way. It might it might actually flow the other way. Mm-hmm. So. Um, even though we had the midnight sun, it was like being in a maze at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All your normal visual cues weren't there. Um, and, you know, there is nobody there. No one's coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, at best, a helicopter might be able to winch up if, if one existed. Yeah. So, um, and then camp spots, you know, as you're moving through, all of these sandbars that should be there to stop aren't there. Yeah. So then you started to think about, okay, as, as night loomed or the, the curfew hour, two hours loomed, where am I going to stop? Um, so in the end of, of, of that day, we, we did find a, a really good camp. Um, and what we were trying to do for that last day of the race, you know, that day, day it's really day seven, but it's, it's day like you're in the seventh day, yeah. As in terms of of time, but actually elapsed time, it's actually six days. Mm-hmm. We've been going, so in that seventh day, uh, we knew that again we had to hit a strike zone. Um, so that 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 last second to last day, the penultimate day, was about getting through the flats, which was intimidating, and was affecting progress because of it, because you were stopping, looking, double checking, you know a lot more than you would uh, ordinarily, um, and yet you were trying to hit a strike zone. So the last part of the race went through a couple of little places. One was called Beaver, um, and that was sort of an area we thought, right, if we could get within Be- we could get to Beaver, we would give ourselves slightly less than 150 miles, and that was always our goal. Mm-hmm. If we could get to that last day to give ourselves a, a psychological boost of being able to at long last paddle less than we'd had to paddle every other day. Yep. So we had that any any mileage less than 150 was going to be easy. So we had that uh, we had that um, objective. So get through the flats, get to um, striking zone of Beaver, and we did. We actually got to Beaver. Beaver was just up the river on our right. We could see. Big town, I'm sure, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, about three buildings. <laughs> Probably derelict, you know. <laughs> so um, we could see some some sun shining off a couple of what looked like metal roofs. Yeah. So we thought, okay, we've hit Beaver. And we, we, we happened to find one reasonably good sandbar. And that was a great night because, you know, we set up camp and we thought, right, tomorrow we're going to we hit the finish. And we've got less than, for the first time, we got less than 150 miles to paddle, mm-hmm. and that was luxury. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, that's another part I haven't thought about. On that, you wanted to set yourself up so that that last day you knew you could get to the finish before you went back into the curfew and you had to come off the river again. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So that's that took a lot of smart planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, you know, it's what we talked about there, the Ultimaha. Um, you know, I, I, you know. Ben's the same. We always look at 
what, you know, what, what's variable, mm-hmm. what's not. Mm-hmm. What are those what I call unmovable objects? Well, the finish is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what was it going to take to get to the finish? We had to get somewhere that was going to take the risk of just maybe not getting there, which would mean we'd have to find another camp. Exactly, and then, and yeah. you still would have finished. Oh, yeah. It would have just costed you cost another an extra day. another yeah, yeah an extra yeah. six hours of rest. Yeah. So yeah. it would have added a tremendous amount of. You could have added a half a day on. It was a race. You could have added a half a day yeah. onto your time if you would have just barely missed that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. And as I say, the cycle, the psychology of having been out there that long, uh, with the hardest part of the race at the finish, quite often. Races have the hardest part somewhere else in the race. Yeah. And as you go towards that finish line, the latter part of the race, you know, is sort of in your mind downhill. Well, yeah. This race doesn't work like that. The hardest part's at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so you, 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 you've got to plan for that. Uh, and that's an unmovable object. So you, you do your timing, you know, throughout the race based on those unmovable objects you know you've yet to encounter. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so getting up from from camp after after night six, now moving into day seven, the last day. Yep. Uh, how were you? How were you and Ben feeling? Were you feeling uh, rejuvenated? Were you were you worn down? Were you just consistent? I mean, how were you guys feeling at this point? I uh, mean, we were just we were just on a high. Yeah, I mean, we had been so consistent, and that was all in our planning and our and uh, our preparation. And, and and I don't say this lightly that we both got to the finish, we could have carried on, mm-hmm. no problem at all. That was the mindset we were in. So, you know, that 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 uh, high actually started setting up camp to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Knew, we knew we were done. Yeah, we knew that we'd reached that objective. We were at Beaver. In the strike zone, you just felt a million dollars. Yeah. The next day was just easy. It was the easiest day on the river. Most enjoyable, the easiest. Wow. What was the river like on that last day? Were you oh, still in the flats there? Oh, uh, beautiful, beautiful. So the last part of the race, you pretty much leave Beaver, um, and there's a big, big left-hand bend in the river. And you're now, you're obviously, you're now in Alaska. So once you cross into Alaska... The mountain, the, the hills become more like a mountain. They're not big, big mountains, but the structure and the stone and just the, the whole river looks more like a river again. Mm-hmm. As you come out of the flats, it narrows right back up. Uh, so the flow picks up. So everything starts to turn in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, think I'll, I don't think Ben will ever forget it either, but I said I, I can sort of sense, I can almost see when a river drops altitude. Yeah, And I kid you not, we turned... We turned uh, the left-hander at Beaver, and the, and the river at that stage was probably, I don't know, it was probably three-quarters of a mile wide. But you could see in front of you, you could literally see it narrowing in front of you. You could see mountains, and I could see it, the drop in the altitude. It felt like we were paddling downhill. Mm-hmm. And we got into this, uh, into this flow, and I could... Still remember Ben's words at, 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 from the back. He said, man, we got it now. That's the exact words he said. And I was thinking exactly the same thing because <laughs> we knew that all we had to do was literally go down this big, big straight, miles long, 
and it hung a right, and that was the home straight. So, yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, that whole day was an easy day, mm-hmm. psychologically, mentally, and physically we're in the groove anyway, so mm-hmm. it was never a physical problem. Yep. How um, – it talked to me about the finish because I, ha- I haven't talked to you any anything about what, what that was like for you personally, um, who was there, I mean, what yep. how it affected you, Ben. I mean, just yep. – I don't know anything about it. So Yeah. So the finish um, – it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? So get to Beaver, take a left-hand bill, take a bend, go down the hill and take a right-hander and hit the finish. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a few miles, though. Yeah, um, 150 yeah. almost, yeah. So we uh, we, we hit the right-hander, um, and, you, and you hit the right-hander, and you, do, you don't go very long, and in the distance you can see the Dalton Highway Bridge, which is where we finish. Mm-hmm. So this big, big, long straight, and you could see the the, the, um, the bridge. So we, you know, we paddled up to that pretty strongly, and uh, you've got to go underneath it. And John sets up the actual where you, where you hit land uh, in a little eddy. So you sort of just got to, you know, there's a, there's a bit of kayak skill. Um, you know, you got work to do, in other words, mm-hmm. but it's automatic at that stage. So we we um, we just were all business. We just we just paddled in. Um, I don't. I think. In fact, I've seen a video. Someone videoed from the bridge us doing the. Final stretch of the of the water under the bridge. Yeah, I saw that. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean that's sort of we still had a stroke rate of, I think I was, I th- if I had to put a number on, I think our stroke rate for the whole race would have been about sixty two, sixty four per minute, and that's pretty much what we were on when you look yeah. at that video. We're still s- stroking strong, um, so I came under the bridge. Um, the race directors there. Uh, where we stop under that Dalton Highway Bridge. So the Dalton Highway Bridge is the uh, the road, it's a bridge, and it's the road that was built for the Alaskan Pipeline to service the pipeline, obviously, when they built it, and now it services it. So um, I've never actually watched it, but apparently there's a program on TV called Ice Truckers. Mm-hmm. Ice Road Truckers, uh, yeah. yeah. And they go, to a, they go to a truck stop that's made famous by this particular tv program well that's where the finish is okay so the dalton highway bridge and that the, that truck stops there so john sets up base there uh we pulled in he was standing on the side of the of the river with two cans of beer <laughs> and i'm not a big beer drinker but it still tasted pretty good yeah <laughs> um, i bet it did it did and a bottle of champagne believe it or not huh and uh we pulled up and um got out of our kayak and I think before John said congratulations, I think that my memory is the first thing he said is, wow, I can't believe how you just popped out of that. Said, Everyone else has been pulling up and generally they're crawling out, falling out. Said, you guys just pulled out in such great condition. Mm-hmm. So that that was, you know, I never thought about it because that's how we'd done it the whole race. So we popped out, gave each other a hug and um, shook John's hand and gave him a bit of a hug and, he gave us the beer, and uh, yeah, we pretty much just—I don't know—I can't, I can't. It's a bit sort of sketchy that little bit because my me- memory is really we just—he uh, did a little interview thing, which he does for his own, which mm-hmm. hasn't been put out yet for for his media uh, about you know us finishing and how we felt, and 
I think it, all we pretty much said was, oh, yeah, it was, it was as expected, you know. We're happy with our time of six days, 15 hours. Uh, what we wanted to know was where we were in the race because we only ever saw one competitor for a 1,000 miles. <laughs> so, actually, no, I tell a lie. We saw two. We saw the girls yeah. that night we camped. And in the middle of the flats, these two UK guys um, who we'd become friendly with, Ben's especially has become very friendly with them. Out of nowhere, they're just, we're in a sandbar in the middle of nowhere. And we hear these voices. And this canoe just comes around the corner in the flow. <laughs> and so we had a bit of a party. We sort of, they sort of landed and we're like, well, fancy meeting you here in the middle of nowhere, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the first thing we wanted to know was, Who's finished? Yeah. <laughs> Where is everybody? So you guys got spread out pretty quick oh, yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But even on the river, Chad, you, you sort of, you know, distances are so great. And you know what it's like on the water. Um, a couple of miles on the water visually looks forever. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a, a canoe or a kayak with two people in it, this huge, huge landscape, it's almost impossible to pick out. Oh, they're not visible. Exactly. No. Exactly. So... You know, we knew possibly some competitors could have been within an hour or two hours of us. Mm -hmm. And um, when Will and Toby, the UK guys, pulled up to the to the uh, in the middle of nowhere and uh, onto the same sandbar, you know, they said, "Oh, you know, we, we we were here that night, here that night." We're like, "Oh, then you've been traveling no more than two hours behind us at yeah. any given time." But for all intents and purposes, they might as have been on another planet. Huh. You know, so I think that was yeah you know, probably the first thing. So you so you pulled up at the finish, and there was a whole crowd of people there to no. cheer you on, no. <laughs> give you a hand clap, and a no nobody big award and a big meal, and no no just John and uh, <laughs> just John. So yeah. where 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 did you guys end up finishing? Well, as far place wise, so we finished fifth in the kayak section. Okay. And we finished eighth overall. Okay. In six hours. And, and we were only, the record, I think, for the race at that stage was about six hours, sorry, six days, four hours. Um, so it was a pretty competitive year. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of teams, you know, we were six hours, six days, 15 hours. So we we're pretty close to the record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, nobody there. John just gave us a beer and, uh, and he does a, a really cool thing, and you know about this in the military with the old Roman coin mm -hmm. and the exchange of that coin. So he, he does a nice commemorative little coin, and 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 he, he does it sort of, not secretly, but just just sort of just puts it in his hand and then shakes your hand, and you feel you, this is something in his hand, and that's how you exchange it. And yeah. that's, that's that. That's the know? way we like it, isn't it? Yeah, just nice and, you know. And then I think all he said was, you know, just pull your kayak up out of the water for us, and uh, if you go up to the truck stop, that they've got a they've got a burger for you, <laughs> and that was that. And uh, it wouldn't have it any other way, though, man. No, we had to set up. We had to set up our tent. We stayed in our tent again that night, so we just went up to the truck stop, and we couldn't stay in the truck stop, so we just set up our tent again. Uh -huh. So it was just like another night in the race. And and how did so after the finish, um. Which I love that finish, man. I love that. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, logistically, where did you guys go from there? I mean, so how, and how what, did you get there? Yeah, so what John does is um, 
it's it's pretty cool because you know a thousand miles a long way. So uh, collectively between the couple of companies and John, uh, the companies that hi- can hire the the kayaks, they just take a couple of trailers down, uh, down they they travel down the Alaska Highway. Yeah. Um, to pretty much Fairbanks, in Alaska, and then they drive up the the uh, Dalton Highway, um, which is you know at the at the bridge we're still nearly four hours by car away from Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. So they drive up there, and he parks up. He literally camps at the truck stop for two or three days. Mm-hmm. So he's watching the trackers to see where we are, and then times is run to get in. And even that was sketchy because, uh, unbeknown to us, the, the highway was closed in a couple of places. They wouldn't let cars through because of the fires. Mm. So those fires that we had were affecting you know, any, any wider areas. But, yeah, so he just goes down there um, – so we just loaded up the kayak. Uh, sorry, we just pulled the kayak off the water, went and had a meal, set our tent up, went to sleep, woke up the next morning. Uh, they put a little bit of breakfast on because it is a truck stop. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a shower there, which was cool. We had we could have a shower. Um, and then pretty much went down and stripped all the stuff off our kayak, um, put it in, in, our, in our gear bags, and, uh, and then... Um, we were lucky enough. We had someone from New Zealand, Mike White, who you know, um, come up, and uh, he, he'd had a car, and he'd driven up from Fairbanks. So we just okay. Uh, but what what uh, John does is he puts a bus on. Gotcha. Back to Fairbanks. Back to Fairbanks, yeah. and obviously, you know, that's why you have to camp up because he can't run the bus four hours just for one competitor. Yeah, yeah. So you, you so you bank up there. You know, yeah. you you wait until enough competitors are finished, uh, which could be another couple of days. Um, until there's enough to get on the bus, and then he takes you back to Fairbanks. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mean you? So you got a shower that 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 yep. m- next morning at the truck stop. Yep. You mean you didn't pack like Jonah Bunch and bring a, <laughs> bring your shower with you? No, sure didn't. Do, no, I shouldn't didn't do that. Um, That's an inside joke. I'm sure y'all yeah. get to hear more about that yeah, uh, on another yeah. podcast. But. Yeah. No, I tell you, you know what it's like. I mean, I don't. I'm not. You know, I'm pretty simple when I go out. It is what it is. So you know, I don't think about cleaning myself. I don't wash my teeth. I mean, other people do, but yeah. Once I'm out there, I'm just out there, you know. And, yeah. And, and and I just know it's going to be over at some stage. So mm-hmm. what's the big deal? Um, but it doesn't mean that when you finally get a shower, you don't enjoy it. <laughs> oh, no doubt about that, brother. That's for sure. Well, man, I could. We could go so much more in depth on the race, but unfortunately, we have to go to a dinner yeah. this evening. Um, so, thank you for sh- going through that and helping me understand because we haven't even talked about it. I mean, well, we've been hanging out for the last, you know, 10, 12 days and we haven't even talked about it because we haven't had time. And yeah. so, I'm so happy we got to capture it on the podcast, not just for, well, if nobody else listens to it, yeah, you and I, I, I yeah. wanted I wanted to hear it all. So, well, you know, the last thing I'd like to say is that um, it's been great for me because I have not processed this race. I know you haven't. And you jumped right into instructor role. Yeah, well, you know, more more importantly, you know, Ben and I left. He we, we went to do something in the gravel race or something in Montana, and we pretty much just got to Fairbanks and. You know, he dropped me off at the airport and gave me a hug, and we just said, "I'll go see you at home." So even so, you know, we haven't Ben and I haven't processed this race. Yeah. So this is the first time I've actually talked about it, and I've had to think. 
as you've asked me those questions about each day, and there's still a lot I need to process. But you yeah, know, big thank you to you because it's actually given me the time to actually talk, process the race because I, as I say, I finished the race and two days later I was on the river with you. Yeah, locked back on. Yeah, yeah, locked back on. So yeah, so yeah. thank you. It's been. That's going to really be, good. you and Ben better sit down at a oh. dinner when you get home yeah, yeah. and, and I think what spend we'll do some is, time. I think what we'll do is we'll sit down and we'll listen to this. And just pause it and, and, yeah. and talk, talk yeah, through just it? just talk. Yeah. yeah. I love that, man. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh, I, I definitely want you to just um, just give us a, a brief rundown on what's going on with the Revenant this year. Um, we, we do expect international competitors to be yeah, back this abs- year absolutely um yep and uh i hear that the race this is going to be the hardest year the most difficult year in terms of navigation for the race and uh, i just want you to tell a little little bit about the revenant for the listeners that might be interested in a a challenge that is unsupported where there is real risk where there is extreme difficulty um, much like the Yukon 1000 that Scott just described to us, although the Revenant is on foot, um, I think many of the components of the Revenant are very similar to the components of the Yukon 1000. So just yeah. tell the listeners a little bit about the race. And Okay. So the race is basically modeled on the Barclay Marathons format, so four laps, roughly, Just we don't quite disclose, but you know, you'll at least do 100 miles, put it that way. Uh, you got 60 hours to finish it in four laps, uh, each lap in an alternate direction. Um, and it's like an orienteering race in the sense that you have to go navigate to a set number of checkpoints um, in, in getting them in sequence, unlike a row game where you can get them in outer sequence. So you have to get them in sequence. Uh, and you navigate with no electronics, just a map and, and uh, a compass, and we strip time of you so there's no watches allowed. So it's an old-fashioned sort of race in that sense. Um, 2023, uh, we're lucky that, you know, for the most of us in the world, we've been shut down uh, through COVID, which means there's been no international competitors. We've been lucky enough to ra- run the race every year uh, with Kiwis. Um, we'll have our internationals back, which is great, and we're hoping to have you back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings a uh, complete you know, change to the race in the sense that it's just nice to have other people from other countries that bring different perspective on things. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. Makes the competition stronger. No question about that. Um, and the so we've got, we got our internationals back, which is great. And this is the first year that we're going to have a major change in the course. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that means that, you know, if you've done it before, there's still a good number of checkpoints that will be familiar to you so that learned experience is certainly an advantage i didn't want to not i didn't want to change it to the point where it was a fresh sheet of paper mm-hmm. so that people that had gained some experience it was of no use to them anymore because the, the ethos of the race is that you know a, a challenge for most people is not something they consider that failure is the most likely outcome they think it's just a you know they're going to do it yeah, but a good challenge, a real challenge, in my opinion, is something that also takes time. Yeah, to work it out. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't think in our day and age people think that maybe doing a race multiple times is what you mean by that, but it is for me. Yeah. So, you know, so we don't change everything. So that if you've done the race before, you will have an advantage. But there is enough change in the course and enough change in some of the little wee protocols that you might have got used to mm-hmm. um, that will make it, in my opinion, the most difficult course we've ever had. And this will be year five. Correct. Did you get rid of checkpoint eight? Uh, no, we haven't, but it's different. And that's crypt- <laughs> and that's cryptic in itself, isn't it? Um, but no, no, checkpoint, you'll be roaming around to checkpoint. Holy crap, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> It's become a bit infamous, but I've got a sneaking feeling that maybe one or two of the other checkpoints might trump it. <laughs> Holy smokes, man. That and, checkpoint and, and, eight is like a wormhole. Yeah. It's just yeah. a small patch of woods. Yeah. I mean, it's just, but it's like, yeah, it's the difficult. It's strange in there, it man. It is. I mean, we've had some competitors, you know, first year sort of think maybe we had got it marked wrong. Or, yeah. We've had sort of a number of comments, but it certainly isn't marked wrong. There is certainly something about that terrain in there, and and the way the slopes and the and the subtle changes and in in, in uh, gradient just throw you off. You know, yeah, they just throw you off. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, a couple of the changes um, navigationally, I don't think they're going to be any more difficult. Than, I don't think they're going to be any more difficult. It's the route choice possibly to them. Yeah. And certainly the terrain that you're going to be traveling is is interesting. I'll use that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a couple of new psychological twists that I think will play on people's minds. Mm-hmm. Some of them, may, they, they, I could see some people thinking that they'll be a real positive. But I can also see some people thinking they'll be a real negative. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Man. I miss it, man. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, you, you've got that mindset. You know, if you're into our sort of mindset, the whole concept of a challenge that is more likely to be one you'll fail at than you'll ever succeed. Yeah. And then all the, the twists and the turns and the unknowns and the knowns mm-hmm. and the fact that you have to plan, but then there's parts that you, <clears throat> you can't plan for. Mm-hmm. you just got to plan that, you know, the unexpected's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be ready for that. Yeah. And that's what I like about unsupported events is that you can't plan for everything. Mm-hmm. But you certainly can plan for the unexpected, mm-hmm. which means you've got to be flexible. Yep. Yep. And you got to have good systems in place. Perfect systems. Yep. And that's what I love about it is that if you plan well enough for the unknown, you can, you know, you can meet the challenge. Yep. Yep. So... Well, Scott, where can people find more information about the Revenant and potentially apply? So you can um, apply uh, or you can find it on our website, which is uh, www.revenant.co.nz or NZ. Um, If you Google, it's become a race now that seems to have a bit of notoriety. So look, you can just go on to Google. And if you put Revenant Ultra Run in, Mm-hmm. Pretty much comes up as okay. the, as the top thing. Good. So, but we're on. We've got a YouTube. If you if you search Revenant Run on on YouTube, 
on Instagram and on Facebook, you'll, you'll get out, you'll find it. Yep. And so, yeah, all your, all your interaction on social media is, is through the Revenant pages, right? Correct. It's all okay. done through there. And, uh, there's an entry on the website and, and each one of those platforms you, there is, you'll see the, the web page. Um, and when you, when you get to the web page, there's a menu that says enter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the entry is simply a submission. Mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed. So all you're doing is giving us your contact details, uh, giving us some races that, you, that you've done, and we're really not interested in ones you've done. We weren't interested in ones you've completed. Mm-hmm. And that's Some people just say we've done this, and we find out they didn't complete it. So you've just got to be completed races, uh, and then I will call you. I call every single potential person. Yeah, I don't just base it on what you've put down because we, we've got competitors that don't do any races. You know, one guy from Australia just, I don't do races, but I, I hiked from Darwin to Ears Rock or something stupid. Yeah. That tells me a lot about somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's ready. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we I follow it up with an interview, after which I'll make my decision on whether I think, you know, you, you, the race, and you, are you a good fit? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, you, you have to do that because, yeah, there's significant risk navigating through that terrain. Yep. And absolutely. you just have to do that. You have yep. to vet people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, I really enjoyed this conversation. I guess we better wrap it up, <laughs> get back to the house. If I don't get back in time to uh, greet the company this evening, I, I think I might get in a little trouble. trouble yeah. uh, you don't have to worry about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I always love it when we have the opportunity to sit down and, and record and um, give people some insight into – who Scott Worthington is and the kind of crazy stuff that he does. At I, I have to add this, and I know you hate that I add this, but at 65 years old, the type of crazy stuff he does. And I just have to add that because so many people, especially in regular life, they use their age as an excuse for essentially living just a... Uh, Essentially, they use their age as an excuse for their present to be just a, a, a continued, continued version of their future. In other words, they're not pushing, they're not striving, they're not challenging themselves, and they say, "Well, oh, it's just because, you know, I'm in, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in this retirement age." And you did the exact opposite. Yep. You did the exact opposite. Yep. You got all you, you, you got all your, your career work. Uh, business stuff behind you in the first half, and yep. the second half is all about adventure and pushing and growing and challenging, and it's just a magnificent. I, I pick up such good habits from you every time I get to hang out with you, and I was actually thinking this morning, it would be very beneficial for me if I just went to New Zealand and lived with Scott Worthington <laughs> for a month and welcome. developed <laughs> more of his habits. I was thinking about that this morning. It's amazing the lifestyle that you live, brother. And I just want to say thank you for all that you've poured into 307 Project. Thank you for all the advice, the mentorship, uh, the instruction that you offered on this past mission that we did over the last week and week or so. And um, all out of pure generosity n- with no expectation for anything in return, uh, which is just... Uh, well, completely unique for for 
for me personally and in, in my life and relationships that I've had in the past, uh, when, when Scott brings something to the table, there's never any caveat. There's never any, well, you, you're going to have to scratch my back and in return, it's just, he shows up irregardless and, and pours into other people's lives, which is his, uh, purpose that he's identified for his life. And, um, it's great to have humans like you around well, the world's a better place because of it yeah, i don't know about that but you give us something to strive for it's definitely a pleasure and an honor to be here well i love you brother I love you too buddy enough said okay